Hello everyone, I'm Rania Kalik, and this is a special live stream episode of Dispatches. The impact of Russia's war in Ukraine isn't isolated to Europe. As the US and NATO pour weapons into a Ukrainian insurgency, the risk for confrontation between nuclear armed powers is rising. Does this mark the end of unipolarity and the beginning of a multipolar world? If so, what does that mean? How will support for Ukrainian insurgency feed into the rise of the global far right? What will be the impact of war and sanctions on Russia, which are already causing wheat, fertilizer, and fuel prices to skyrocket? And what should be the anti-imperialist left's position on these major developments? To help me make sense of it all and frame these events in their global context, I'm joined by Vijay Prashad. Executive Director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and author of Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA, Coups and Assassinations. Vijay, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you. And my God, that's a tall order to talk about. But let's see where we go. <laughs> right. It is a tall order to talk about, but it's so necessary right now. And I think people are really hungry for this sort of analysis. But before we get to it, I just want to remind people who are watching that you can listen to every episode of this show anywhere you get podcasts and you can support breakthrough news and all of our wonderful content here by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. So VJ, well, let's get to it. Um, I think, you know, a good place to begin because I don't think it can be said enough how we got here. So let's talk about how we got here. And I mean, briefly, we don't have to go too deep into it but it's still gonna be a big question. For most people, the history of this conflict in Ukraine started on February 24th, and all they know is that that's when the Russians invaded. But you know, to really understand why this happened, we have to know how far back we should go. So how far back do you think we should go to explain this conflict? Should we go to 2014? Do we go to 2008? Do we go to 1991? Or do we go all the way back to 1917? Where do you think, this conflict started? I mean, you know, we could go back to the 13th century. Um, we could go back to the origin of, of Ukraine and Russia and, and so on. Um, you know, one thing we should recognize immediately is when the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, um, it fell apart pretty peacefully, by and large. In other words, uh, the main uh, uh, so Soviet Socialist Republic, Russia, essentially, which is such a big uh, part of the USSR, essentially allowed the other republics to go uh, without much violence at all. You know, Ukraine went its way, Georgia went its way, the Central Asian republics went their way, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so on. Relatively peaceful uh, transition, actually. But there was something that was, in a sense, waiting to happen. And that was the fact that there were a large number of Russian-speaking people in many of these new countries. And it didn't take long. You know, the first big rumble, um, major rumble, was in South Ossetia in 2008 in Georgia, where there was a conflict between the Georgian government and the Russian government. Now, the problem is that when you have um, these new nations come into being, like Ukraine, for instance, it has to deal with minorities. You know, during the USSR, um, even though there was a Ukraine Soviet Socialist Republic, 
everybody there was a Soviet citizen. Um, their citizenship was Soviet, not Ukrainian. It was not linked to a, you know, ethnicity as it were. So there were protections for Ukrainians, Russians, Moldovians, Lithuanian. I'm talking about people who spoke those languages. When the Ukraine uh, um, situation, you know, after 1991, particularly 94, when Ukraine was declared to be an independent country, um, the issue of the minorities was on the table. I mean, it's not a, it's not something to disregard. There's a deep cultural problem. And this uh, development of Ukrainian nationalism rubbed against the fact that there were not only Russian speakers, but there was Roma populations, Hungarians, Lithuanians, Moldovan, and so on. This was accelerated after 2014, particularly under the administration of President Petro Poroshenko, who drove a right-wing Ukrainian nationalist policy and that really fueled the conflict in the Donbass region where there's the majority of um, Russian speakers. But let's not forget the Roma are closer to the western border of, of Ukraine with Hungary and so on. They also experienced a lot of this Ukrainian ultra-right nationalism attacked by the ultra-right and so on. There are many origins to this, uh, Rania. You, you know you're sitting in Beirut. There is not one origin to the civil war that started in the 1970s. There are many authors of it. Right. People who seek a single origin don't actually understand that human history is very much more complicated. Doesn't start in 2014. Certainly doesn't start on the 24th of February uh, 2022. This is a much longer conflict. But I would say that um, this conflict was certainly accelerated in 2014. And I think the way in which the Russian entry took place has certainly deepened and complicated the conflict. Yeah, of course. And I mean, when we talk about, obviously, the conflict in Ukraine, we can't talk about it without talking about NATO expansion. Do you think Russia was right to feel threatened by NATO expansion? You know, was NATO really going to attack Russia or use Ukraine as some sort of base from which to launch an invasion? Or, you know, and I guess on top of that, why do you think, and this is just something that you can speculate, obviously, none of us are able to ask Putin this, but why do you think Putin did this and why now, right? Because obviously this conflict has been going on for the last eight years and NATO expansion has been going on for the last 30 years or longer, yeah. actually, if you want to go back to its origins. I'm glad you raised the question of NATO, but again, it's very much more complicated than is commonly talked about. Um, NATO was set up in 1949 as a quote-unquote defensive alliance. Basically, it was the United States' attempt to secure Western Europe in the U.S. camp against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. That's what NATO is. It's a kind of Trojan horse for U.N. power in Europe. Um, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, yes, people did say, well, maybe NATO should be shut down. Interestingly, both the Russian government of Boris Yeltsin from 1991 to 1999 and many of the governments of Eastern Europe sought to have a new equation with Europe. Now, they sought that equation, Rania, in two different ways. One was economically and politically. They sought it through the European Union. number of them joined the European Union, you know, including, of course, Poland and so on. Um, and the second way they sought an equation was through NATO. There was pressure on many of these countries. I'm not talking from outside, from within, to join NATO. Now, here's the interesting thing. Russia 
joins the European process, becomes firstly a partner of the G7, which was expanded to the G8. And Russia in 1994 becomes a NATO partner of peace, just like Ukraine. Furthermore, in 2004, when eight bordering countries, many of them bordering countries of Russia joined NATO, including, you know, the Baltic states, that's, um, you know, up there, Latvia, Lithuania, and so on. When they joined NATO, Sergei Lavrov participated in the ceremony to welcome them into NATO. And Jens Stoltenberg, and this is 2004, mind you, Jens Stoltenberg said at that time, that, look, we have no ulterior motive against Russia. Russia has no problem with our expansion. Putin started to criticize NATO in 2007, only in 2007. So there is a way in which this NATO issue has also been blown out of proportion because France and Germany said Ukraine can never be part of NATO because there's a border dispute. Well, that's interesting. There's a divide inside Europe. The question wasn't NATO expansion by itself. That's not exactly the issue. When Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the Intermediate uh, Forces uh, Treaty, the INF, the Mid-Range Nuclear Treaty, very important treaty, Donald Trump withdrew the United States from that in 2018. Very soon after that, Putin withdrew from the INF. This was catastrophic for the arms control um, you know, a very delicate arms control um, apparatus that's out there. When Trump withdraws the United States from the INF, Putin starts to say, listen, now we fear that you're going to place intermediate nuclear weapons on the borders of Russia and the flight time for your mid-range nuclear warheads into Moscow is going to be minutes. And therefore, mm. we fear annihilation and therefore... We are against the expansion of NATO. So really, the question is not merely the expansion of NATO. The question is all these other things happening at the same time, including Biden pledging to spend $100 billion on a brand new missile facility, um, which is not got name, but it's essentially Minutemen 4. They're spending $100 billion on that. And that's what Putin is reflecting on. There's another theme, Rania, which is not talked about enough. You see, in 2014, uh, the Russians went and brought Crimea into Russia. I say brought because there was a majority in Crimea that voted quickly to join Russia. I, I understand that this is controversial, but Crimea entered Russia. The reason Russia intervened in Crimea in 2014 is Crimea was one of Russia's two warm water ports. It's in Sevastopol for the Russian Navy. The other one is in Syria, in Tartus, in Latakia. And therefore, in September 2015, Russia intervenes in Syria. These two interventions, Crimea and Sevastopol, are to preserve Russia's only two warm water ports. A lot of this intervention is taking place around Crimea, and it's not getting discussed enough. Over the course of the last year, the United States, uh, the, the Russians have complained that the government of Ukraine has cut off water supply into Crimea. And the Russians had to drive tankers of water across the one bridge that connects Russia with Crimea, you know, with the Crimean section. So what um, I, I see the Russian forces doing is, yes, they entered from Belarus, they entered from from Russian territory, and they came north from Crimea. But they're trying to create a land bridge 
um, from Donetsk and Luhansk into Crimea. So I think there are three things that are driving this Russian military intervention. One is to protect these Russian populations in Donetsk, Luhansk, and other parts into what they call denazify Ukraine. That's a one war aim. Second one is to make sure that these intermediate missiles are not going to enter into Ukraine or into other parts of Eastern Europe. It's actually a, a message Putin is sending to other countries. And the third is to build a land bridge. I think this is what the Russians are up to. Now, again, I'm merely telling you what I think is happening. I don't have a hotline to, um, you know, the Kremlin. Right. No, and I think those are all really important points. And uh, and it, ma it makes perfect sense. But I do want to step away from this particular war for a moment and obviously the horror and death and moral issues associated with it and look at this geopolitically, kind of like, you know, John Mearsheimer might be staring at a board game of risk or something. And I want to talk about Russia's invasion in that context and if it's actually changed the world order, if it might lead to a multipolar or rebalanced world. And, you know, on the socialist program with Brian Becker, which, you know, is on Breakthrough News every Wednesday, um, last week, Brian Becker and Eugene Perrier made the case that a multipolar world is not by itself an answer to unipolarity. And actually, VJ, you made that point with me when we did a, an episode for my show, for this show, Dispatches, a few months ago, specifically about multipolarity, but that it's not in and of itself an answer to unipolarity, even if it's a step forward. You know, it could even mean capitalist states being more willing to confront each other militarily, you know, no longer restrained by the fear of the West. And even in a multipolar world, Western imperialism still is one of the poles, right? And it's extraordinarily aggressive, and especially because it's unwilling to become a peer of any other poles. So does the Ukraine war mark, in your opinion, the beginning of a more multipolar world? Or, or do you think it's more of a global shift to unmanaged chaos, in which case it would actually be more of a negative development? How do you see that? that aspect of this playing out? You know, I think people who focus on the Ukraine situation as the beginning of something new are revealing a classic Eurocentric perspective. Because in fact, I would say, Rania, that um, this, this development starts again in Syria in 2015, when those Russian planes enter Syria. Because, you know, that was something different. Um, this is the first time since the fall of the Soviet Union that a country has militarily challenged the United States. And I don't mean direct mil military confrontation, but a country came in and said to the United States, no, we will not allow you to bomb Damascus. We will not allow you to overthrow um, the Syrian government. That was a key moment in September 2015. You know, since, let's say, the uh, U.S. entry into Panama in 1989, which is really the beginning of a new period, and then the U.S. smashing of Iraq in 1991, the smashing and breakup of Yugoslavia through the 90s, the attack on Afghanistan. And, you know, you know the story. It goes all the way, in fact, um, all the way to Libya in 2011, when Russia allowed the West to have a Security Council resolution, U.N. Resolution 1973. That was 2011 March. But in September 2015, when the Russians entered Damascus, when those planes flew in, I mean, I was sitting in Beirut, watched these planes come in, and I was thinking, what's going on? That was a big shift. Now, 
doesn't mean that suddenly there are multipoles you know in the world and so on but it was certainly the first time in decades that the united states had faced somebody saying we will not actually allow you to do this we're not saying it's not that we are saying it's a bad thing for you to overthrow the government many governments said that the south african government openly said don't overthrow the government of libya and so on many governments said that but here a government acted by sending military forces to say we are creating a shield around the government in damascus that was the difference and in a sense what's happening here in ukraine is merely a slight um, quantitative increase because now the uh, united states actually said we we will enter this conflict you know directly remember in syria initially the motive was overthrow the government in damascus the assad government after the russian intervention the us immediately pivoted and said our project here is to fight isis you know and therefore we are just going to stay on they quickly changed the game plan how right. will you change the game plan here you told you said that we will protect the kiev government in fact mr zelensky spoke in the uk parliament you know the first foreign leader to speak to the uk parliament incredible well you 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 will have that now how will you protect him what will you do are you going to send us planes and land them in the international airport in kiev i don't think so that's where we are we are at a position of great shifts and rebalancing taking place it's not clear what's going on you know i very much took notice of the chinese foreign ministry uh, you know conversation with sergey lavrov mr wang he says to him we got to get out of the cold war mentality i thought that was a really interesting statement got to get out of the cold war mentality where do we go next well we haven't gone out of the cold war mentality we're still there look at the way biden and others are talking they're talking as if they're still prosecuting you know the war against the soviet union and so on um, this is a different era and i think that they again want to miscalculate the idea that you're going to send you know hillary clinton talking to msnbc i watched that clip you're going to send money to the you know neo nazi groups like you armed the mujahideen in afghanistan this is immoral actually this is immoral behavior and you know they never learn anything these people in washington dc or in her case in the suburbs of new york city <laughs> well said but you know you know one thing that troubles me is that you know while it's great to have i think it's a good thing to have a a well it's better to have a multipolar world maybe obviously and a unipolar world with with this like big imperialist empire hegemon the us you know just bullying everybody is not good Um so with countries like China and Russia that can limit the freedom of action that the US had in the 90s especially but of course throughout the 2000s I mean that's a good thing but at the same time you know Russia's not exactly like Cuba right it's not promoting revolution it's not exporting ideas it's not really offering alternative values it's just like a cap another capitalist power espousing you know nationalism at most Um of course trying to demand respect and it's sort of like fair share of the global cake if you will. But this means that a Russian challenge to the US even if it succeeds has limited ideological value, does it not? I mean the question that we can discuss is what is the Russian project? Um you know, 
I mean, I, I come at this, I'm a Marxist. I'm pretty old fashioned in my thinking. I understand that. And I know the limitations of it in today's world. Um, but whatever, regardless, I still think it's important that when the Soviet Union was created, Lenin warned about great Russian chauvinism. He wrote a lot about this, said that we really need to understand minority nationalities and so on. That attitude needs to be highlighted today. You know, I'm against all forms of ethnic chauvinism, frankly. I think all of them are hideous. And inside Ukraine, Ukrainian, um, you know, chauvinism was playing itself out under Poroshenko. They uh, made non-Ukrainian languages not part of the state. They broke ties between the Church of Kiev and the Church of Moscow. Um, they militarized a society in, in a certain kind of Ukrainian nationalist way and so on. Similar things are happening inside Russia. Let's face it. Um, there is a kind of chauvinism that's growing there. It's very unpleasant in my opinion. Look at the chauvinism in Poland. You know, the anti-Asian uh, migrants. Even today, there are Africans and Asians who are being stopped at the Ukraine-Polish border, not allowed in and so on. The chauvinisms that are growing in Western Europe, uh, you know, anti-Muslim attitudes in France and Germany, these are all hideous, but they're all the same. You know, there's no high moral ground here. And that's the sad thing about these conflicts is that we don't have high moral grounds in any of them. People should not get worked up about one side being better than the other. We're dealing with a lot of hideousness here. Um, right. The issue is one of the reasons why, um, you know, it's complicated for people to wend their way around these issues is that there's a kind of frustration that I have with the way the Russian government has played this out. Eight years, 14,000 civilians had been killed in the Donbass region, 14,000 civilians. You know, why didn't the Russian government, because these are Russian speakers, but others could have as well, you know, people in France could have, or the government in India could have, but India doesn't have a moral leg to stand on. Why didn't another government come to the UN and put forward a resolution uh, for the, the, the fact that the Minsk agreements, one and two, had been basically shredded by the uh, right-wing groups and that civilians who were being killed in the Donbass. Why wasn't that made into a political issue? You know how the West made, for instance, Darfur into a political issue. Um, people all around the world suddenly learned about Darfur. Why, weren't, right. why wasn't the word Donbass lifted up to the word Darfur? You know, when Zelensky said, he gave a quite a heartfelt speech. He said, look, I come from a Jewish family. I'm against Nazis. At that point, Mr. Putin could have boarded one of the Russian planes, flown into Kiev and challenged Mr. Zelensky, let's hold an international anti-fascist to anti-Nazi conference in Kiev. You know, that kind of politics was not put forward much. And I must say, we have a lot to learn from the way the West constructs consent. You know, you, yeah. you don't send in tanks immediately. You have to construct consent. And, and it's a good sign of how these new emerging countries like Russia and China and so on, they don't really grasp the power of building consent, you know, and that needs to be put on the table. I, I was actually quite shocked um, that the word Donbass, you know, wasn't banged on. Like You, you remember the Darfur thing. The comparison is actually opposite um, in the sense that there was something happening in Darfur, but how amazingly they were able to lift it up. Uh, it's not just Darfur. Look at Libya. Aleppo okay? or the word Aleppo. Or Aleppo. Yeah. yeah. Libya is a good example. The Donbass 
conflict took place over eight years. 14,000 dead, 50,000 casualties. That's a UN figure. I'm sure it's underestimated. I'm sure the numbers are greater. Libya. I mean, I reported from Libya. I've known Libya for many, many years. I wrote a book about it. I understand that country a little bit. It's not that easy to understand everything. But in Libya, in February, a protest breaks out. 25th February 2011, right? Protests break out and so on. Um, yes, the um, the uh, Gaddafi government, you know, goes to quell the protests, just as most governments do. That that happened. Mahmoud Jibril comes to Benghazi. Mahmoud Jibril, by the way, was the financial advisor of the then Sheikh or the Emir of Qatar's wife. You know, an interesting character himself. Used to work for Mr. Gaddafi. Uh, Mahmoud Jibril flies flies from Doha to Benghazi, arrives in Benghazi, he says, you know, we are in a revolutionary situation. And then he tells the West, we are all getting killed by the by the Gaddafi government. By the way, casualties, there was nothing at that time, nothing like 14,000, 50,000 casualties and so on. But they were able to get the West to, you know, play this propaganda machine where they said there's going to be genocide in eastern Libya. And then the what did the West do? Went to the UN Security Council. And at the time, as I said already, even the Russians allowed uh, and the Chinese abstained from that. They should have vetoed that resolution. 1973, they gave NATO permission to go in there and destroy the Libyan state and create what we see today. So what I'm saying is that that was not done at all um, by the Russians. And, and to some extent, it's because it's because the media is essentially controlled, dominated by the Western countries. Look how quickly right. they've been able to get rid of Russia TV, how quickly they've been able to get rid of China or delegitimize these media outlets. So the hold that the West has on the world's imagination, you've got to really understand that. If we don't understand that, we don't understand culturally how we get swept into these conflicts as if suddenly the Ukraine conflict is our conflict. You know, there are people in Burma Okay, in Burma, where there's the persecution of the Rohingya people, people in Burma with their Facebook profiles showing the Ukraine flag. I mean, what is going on in the world? <laughs> it's amazing. It's a, it really is incredible, the level of... It, since you brought up manufacturing consent, I, I do want to say how frightening it is that just a few weeks ago, Americans did not support intervening in Ukraine. But after... I mean, what can only be considered relentless media bombardments. A recent poll is showing that a majority now actually support uh, a no-fly zone. I just want to show this uh, very quickly. Um, one moment. I'm still getting technologically savvy uh, with how to share my screen. Here we go. So this is... Um, this is an, a, a poll that just came out a few days ago uh, about how a majority of Americans now support a no-fly zone in uh, in Ukraine. Some 74%, including solid majorities of Republicans and Democrats, said that the U.S. and its allies and NATO should impose a no-fly zone in Ukraine. What I thought was so interesting about this poll, VJ, is that it also says it was not clear if respondents who supported a no-fly zone were fully aware of the risk of conflict. Um, and majorities opposed the idea of sending American troops to Ukraine or conducting airstrikes to support the Ukrainian army, which is completely contradictory, obviously, because, I mean, I guess that's to say, you know, 
Can you, for those who aren't familiar with what it would mean, can you please explain what a no-fly zone would actually entail? Uh, because clearly there's a lot of confusion about this. And the word, you know, even the word itself, no-fly zone, right? It sounds so, it sounds like something humanitarian. It sounds like something good, a no-fly zone. It doesn't sound like something dangerous, but this includes so much danger. So can you please lay, lay out what that would mean? Well, before we get to the no-fly zone, I, I want to say something about this, uh, these polls and so on. Um, you know, the president of Ukraine, Mr. Zelensky, came out and said, let's bring people in, um, you know, from all around the world to fight in Ukraine. Um, in fact, there are reports, the London Times had a report that they were going to be paid $2,000 a day, um, mercenaries, to come and fight in Ukraine. $2,000 a day. I don't know who's going to pay for it, but that was the London Times. Uh, we know that in, in many places in Algeria and Senegal and so on, ambassadors were putting out calls for people on social media saying, come and fight um, in, in, in Ukraine. By the way, I just want to suggest to you uh, a particular fact that I just talked about Senegal and Ukraine. Both Senegal and Ukraine are signatories. They are one of actually only 46 countries that signed a UN convention against mercenaries. There is, in fact, people oh. may not know this, a United Nations convention against mercenaries. And Ukraine is a signatory of the UN convention against mercenaries. It has signed, it is international law as far as Ukraine is concerned. So the president of Ukraine, by calling for mercenaries to come in, is actually violating international law by itself. Um, it's a bad idea to have mercenaries come into a country, you know, especially people who don't have combat experience. Look at Blackwater in Fallujah when shot up civilians and so on. These are people who are not trained um, like military. Now, I'm not saying the military is so well trained it doesn't kill civilians okay? because we have plenty of evidence of that. But this is even worse. Uh, you have people who have no idea what to do in a war zone uh, coming in. And, and let me tell you, having been to one or two war zones myself, it is confusing. And I don't know how anybody manages um, their mental state there. Right. So this is a terrible idea. You know, it's it's just a, it's it's made for war crimes. And I know that 200 people have come from Croatia, most of them neo-Nazis. This is a terrible, terrible thing that's happening. OK, so on the ground, you've got mercenaries coming in. And then in the air, you want to create a no-fly zone. This is very dangerous. The UN no-fly zone is a very specific uh, you know, uh, practice. The idea is that if one party has um, basically got domination of the airspace, hello, this is Israel over Palestine. If one party has dominance over the airspace, you create a no-fly zone and then third party, fourth party countries patrol the no-fly zone to prevent that one power, Israel, from bombing the Palestinians. Wow. Imagine if there was a no-fly zone over <laughs> Gaza. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. But that's the precise idea of the no-fly zone is that you protect the civilian population because one party in a conflict has overwhelming power over the skies. That's basically the idea. Well, in Libya, as I said, the West got a no-fly zone in UN Resolution 1973 and promptly violated it because they acted no longer to protect the civilians from the air in Benghazi and in, you know, Ashtabia and other cities in the east. No, 
they started operating as the air force of the rebels and started bombing Tripoli. That's against the no-fly zone. And that's precisely what the West does every time it gets a no-fly zone mandate. It ex exceeds it. Th that's a violation of the UN resolution. N nobody can hold them to account for it. You know, That's why calling for a no-fly zone in Ukraine is very dangerous because what it might mean you have, you know, British planes, French planes, U.S. planes circling Ukraine, and they'll start bombing in Lugansk. They'll start bombing in Rostov, perhaps in Russia. I don't know. And this sets up a nuclear problem because now you have major nuclear. You know, Gaddafi didn't have nuclear weapons. He gave up nuclear mm -hmm. weapons in a deal with the West, you know, and, and so then they recognized his government and so on, allowed oil trading to take place. If Gaddafi had nuclear weapons, you wouldn't dare to bomb Tripoli, you know. And just one more point about that. The African Union sent a body to negotiate a ceasefire in Libya during the conflict. Actually, they wanted to go before the conflict. They were prevented. During the conflict, they arrived in Tripoli, talked to Mr. Gaddafi. Mr. Gaddafi said, let's do a ceasefire. Let's end this war. Great. Then the, um, the group went to Benghazi. They met Mahmoud Jibril and others. They said, what about a ceasefire? And, you know, the rebels said, no ceasefire. And do you know why? Because why should they have a ceasefire when the West is bombing Tripoli and the fall of Gaddafi was imminent? They were not going to have a... They wanted to win. They were basically... Want, they thought they would come to power in Tripoli on the wings of a... Um, F-16. As it turned out, of course, the F-16s just destroyed Libya. But that's right. the fantasy, you know. And, and and so no fly zone by itself, it sounds like a, you know, reasonable thing. But the practice of no fly zones, it's not instructive. It's very dangerous as a concept. It's not a peace concept. It's a war concept. And in this case, you would have potential confrontation between two nuclear armed states, which is so incredibly dangerous. And you mentioned that th that the foreign fighters, I mean, thousands of these foreign fighters are flocking to Ukraine. And it's with the encouragement of Western governments and, of course, the facilitation of the Ukrainian leadership under Zelensky. Uh, and we know that the U.S. has already been arming neo-Nazi elements in Ukraine since 2014. And even if that is maybe slightly exaggerated by the Russian government, it's still a reality that mainstream media outlets in the capitalist countries have all reported on and until recently they had been totally honest about the fact um and of course it makes sense because the, that these people would probably make up a lot of these foreign fighters in this case because who's the most ideologically motivated people who have an ideology and white nationalism this sort of right-wing extremism is quite a strong ideology and we know already that far-right ideologues from the u.s and europe have already spent time training with these people in Ukraine over the years. So you can only imagine like how many of these foreign fighters that are traveling to Ukraine are motivated by this ideology. Um, and what's more, what's most important to point out right now, and I want to give an example of this is just how much, since we're talking about manufacturing consent is just how much the media is not only playing into the encouragement of people going to fight and really glorifying, Oh, there's 3000, you know, us military veterans going to fight for freedom in Ukraine. They're also whitewashing and downplaying the far-right elements in this growing Ukrainian insurgency. And I want to play a clip to this point. And I want those who are watching to focus on the blurred photo behind the Ukrainian mayor that's being interviewed in this clip. And also, of course, what he tells PBS. This is a clip from PBS uh, that I'm going to play right now. So let's take a look. 
Artem, can you tell us what happened when Russian troops came into your office? They were demanding I recognize their authority and allow them to patrol the streets, de-arm those who have weapons, and detain those who resist. In the end, I told them, just as Ukrainian soldiers told a Russian warship, go f*** yourself. The rejected Russians walked out holding grenades in their hands. Semenichin actually escorted them and made sure they drove away. And do you fear that they'll come back? and either occupy or try and destroy the city. Yes, of course we are concerned, and this concern is not groundless. There's a big unit near our town, and using the weapons they have, they could destroy our town. But we are not afraid. We are ready to fight till the end, till the victorious end, to defeat these Russian cockroaches. After the Russians left, he rallied his troops, civilians, ready to resist. All of our cities are like this. All of our Ukraine is like this. We have weapons in our hands, we have armed up, and we are ready to kill occupiers. And thanks to the United States of America for supporting Ukraine with weapons. My so I think that that is a very important clip because the there's, if you notice, like I said, if you pay attention, there's an image, a very well-known image of Stepan Bandera Behind him, it's a, the behind that mayor who just called the Russians cockroaches, by the way, which also is language that should raise eyebrows if you're interviewing the mayor. But this man calls Russian cockroaches. And behind him is a very distinct, though blurred out, image of this Ukrainian Nazi, this man who collaborated, this Ukrainian nationalist who during World War II collaborated with the Nazis to kill Jews and Polish people. And that's really important because, you know, if you if if PBS had just Googled this man's name and I want to show this, if they had just Googled this man's name, they would have seen this article. Let me just make sure you can see the article that I have up right now. They would have seen this article. Local Jews in shock after Ukrainian city of Konotep elects neo-Nazi mayor. And this article goes on to state that this mayor is from the Svoboda party, which is a far right party that has neo-Nazi uh, connections to it uh, and goes on to, you know, quote people in the Jewish community in Ukraine about why they're concerned that he's become the mayor and the kinds of things he said, Heil Hitler, whatnot. Anyways, the point is, the point is, this is a clear attempt at either ignorance, pure ignorance, because maybe the, the, the PBS and the reporters are just so enamored with the Ukrainians right now and are horrified by what Russia, Russia is doing, or, you know, that's at best, at worst, this is purely propagandistic whitewashing of somebody who is in a position of power, who is far right. Um, so I just bring all, all that up to say that this is just one example among many, for those who have been perusing Twitter, uh, have seen people pointing out lots of examples in the mainstream press of trying to hide or whitewash or cover up the right-wing elements here. So I guess... You know, VJ, what do you have to say to this? And what do you, moreover, what do you think is the danger of having a training ground for people from the global far right to go fight and possibly get paid to fight in a war in Europe? You know, in, in 2003, the United States prosecuted an illegal war. It's illegal, again, not because I'm saying so, but Kofi Annan, UN Secretary General, told BBC News that it was illegal in 2004. A year later, U.S. conducts an illegal war in Iraq in 2003. Um, 
I, I remember well, within months, an insurgency breaks out in Iraq. It took a little while for various groups to um, you know, recover themselves, different from Ukraine. The insurgency has been going on essentially since 2014. So they're well prepared. In Iraq, they were not prepared. Anyway, they started an insurgency. U.S. government called them terrorists, um, by the way, um, and not uh, freedom fighters or whatever, which is what I think they're calling them now in Ukraine. Uh, fighting for their country and so on. They call them terrorists. Well, okay. And then Iraq becomes a new training ground for all kinds of global jihadists. You know, um, Zarqawi, for instance, comes from the province of Zarqa in Jordan. Um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, you remember, will come to uh, Iraq, set himself up, become the major, first major terrorist outside Afghanistan, um, trains a group of young people in the prisons, uh, trains a group of young people out in, in Ramadi uh, and just north of Baghdad and so on. Well, you know, they got Zarqawi in a, in, a, in a drone strike, but Zarqawi essentially was the ancestor of ISIS. I mean, from Zarqawi comes ISIS. There is no ISIS without Zarqawi. Zarqawi is a product of the U.S. war in Iraq. Well, let's flip the whole story, you know. Ukraine could become essentially combination Afghanistan and Iraq for the neo-Nazis because just like in Afghanistan, but actually more in Iraq, it's not the case in Afghanistan, more in Iraq. Iraq drew in all kinds of hardened jihadis, including, by the way, from Xinjiang. I saw them there. Then they end up going to Idlib and so on drew in people from all over. They were trained in Iraq in fighting the Americans alongside the Ba'ath, uh, you know, ex-demobilized Ba'ath fighters and so on. And then they spread to Libya. They go to Tunisia, to Algeria and so on. Well, now imagine this. Uh, in comes a group of neo-Nazis to train with this fellow and his great support for Bender. And shame on PBS, by the way, for a dishonest report there because they should have talked about what is in fact on the record, that the man is a neo-Nazi, and when he uses the word cockroach, the reporter just sits there and doesn't say, excuse me, is that the way to talk about human beings? Uh, the reporter who's a liberal doesn't challenge, and then they say, oh, you know, state-affiliated news media, come on, give me a break. That reporter from PBS doesn't have the guts to challenge a neo-Nazi. That's hardly reporting. You know, you've got to ask people, what do you use? I mean, I reported from an Al-Qaeda camp in, in Syria, and I had an argument with the Emir about why the Christians were apostates in his eyes. You know, I was terrified they were going to kill me. You know why they were so nice to me is that we shared a love for Hindi music. Um, he wanted to sing some Hindi music songs to me and so on. But I'm not going to sit there and allow him to go on and on about, you know, how the Christians are essentially be below human and etc. I'm not saying I'm better than any other reporter, but it's shocking to have a PBS reporter with all the power of the U.S. government behind him not challenge this fellow. Anyway, look, Ukraine could well become the Iraq of neo-Nazis. You know, what Iraq became for the formation of ISIS, you could see neo-Nazi groups go in there and train. My God, that's a nightmare. Because if you thought that um, it was bad having the jihadis go and create all kinds of trouble in Mali, in Algeria, all kinds of trouble. What got up to after the training they received in Iraq and then in Turkey, in the Turkish borderlands and so on? 
imagine what these fellows will do across europe you know if the europeans are so worried about the french you know that train bombings and so on imagine what the neo nazis will do if they are trained in ukraine and let loose i mean the united states and its allies better introspect now and we need to put it on the record now in 10 years i don't want to hear them say oh we think this through seriously if you say that in 10 years please somebody please i beg you archive this clip i am saying it today today is the 8th of march international working women's day 2022 i am saying that in 10 years if you have neo nazis streaming out of ukraine do not allow the americans the french do not allow them to say we did not anticipate this please save this clip Yes, no, that was well said. I just real quick um just when you're talk just lean back a little bit from the microphone cuz I think it's bleeding through a little bit. But no, very very well said, VJ. It's uh I think we should cut that and like just like play that in 5 years. I don't want that to have to be the case, but it seems like there's zero concern about what the ramifications could be uh for everything you just described. I also want to before we kind of get back to talking about how this is impacting the the sort of global order, I very quickly want to touch on another element of the sort of media propaganda around this war and that's the role of Volodymyr Zelensky the president of Ukraine himself and I think it's interesting you know that he's actually playing this crucial role in rallying the world around escalation I don't blame him I mean his country was invaded even though he of course did participate in helping escalate to bring us to where we are at you know in his from his vantage point he's doing whatever he can to you know help his people but also he's an actor and he's a good one i actually want to show a clip from one of his most famous tv shows where he of course starred in where as the president of ukraine which is what he did before he became the actual president of ukraine because i think this is such it's just i think this is such an interesting dynamic to the story because of the role he's playing now. So let me share this. I promise one of these days I will get faster at doing this. Here it is. Okay. So, this is Zelensky playing on his TV show the role of the president of Ukraine and I thought this clip in particular which some people who are watching may have already seen was really interesting. Hello. Yes, you can connect. Hello, my congratulations. We decided to take your country to the European Union. Oh fuck! Oh, I, I'm sorry. Oh wow! Woo! <laughs> oh, you know, I'm so happy. Yes. Oh, oh and uh, thank you very much, all the uh, Ukrainians and uh, all of our country. Oh, we've been waiting for this so much time. Ukrainians? Yes. Ukrainians. Oh, I'm so sorry that's mistake. I was calling to Montenegro. For Mon Mon Montenegro. Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. Yeah, my <coughs> my congratulations. Yes, to Montenegro. Bye bye. <laughs> so I, I that's actually pretty funny that's actually pretty funny and and i have to say it's, it's pretty uh it's pretty well done um but that that's what Zelensky was doing before he became president 
he played one on TV, and I think that's actually really interesting. I heard uh, a comparison made to almost like that's a great way to run for president is to play one on television. Um, and that, you know, I've heard the argument made before that one thing that might have prepared Americans for having their first black president was, you know, 24 was one of the most popular shows in America, uh, you know, before Barack Obama was president and that the president in that show was a black man. And anyways, there's something to be said about being seeing someone on TV and president and then them becoming one, plus the fact that he is a performer. Um, and so I guess I, I raised that just to, you know, put it to you, because we also know from a New York Times article that was published a couple of days ago that P, that that lobbying firms in D.C. are actually providing services to Zelensky and to Ukraine free of charge right now, which is, by the way, one of the reasons, like as you were talking about with the West being so savvy at pushing its agenda through the media, that's one of the reasons why you see people wrapping themselves in the Ukrainian flag in countries all around the world is because of this particular media campaign. So what do you think this says about the role of performers, if you will, like Zelensky in the drive to war in this age? I mean, we do live in a TV kind of, or let's say a virtual world of images and so on. Um, but the question isn't just a performer. You know, look, uh, the Prime Minister of Pakistan was a former cricket player, extraordinarily popular figure and so on. Um, so many people come out of different careers and, and become heads of government. Uh, Ronald Reagan was an actor. Um, the issue isn't actually even Zelensky. Actually, he is relatively unimportant here, if you take my meaning. The question is how the institutions of um, the international media manufacture heroes and manufacture villains. Um, you know, how villains are manufactured might actually be more important than how heroes are, are talked about. Um, you know, for instance, Mr. Putin. Uh, people forget that Mr. Putin was an associate of Boris Yeltsin. And when he first comes to power, he's actually lionized as this guy who's going to be an efficient bureaucrat, comes former KGB, and, you know, he's got all this history. It's close to the West. And at the time, he was very much interested in the European project and so on. And then suddenly, everything changes. You know, um, Mr. Putin becomes Hitler. Saddam Hussein, you know, um, okay, in um, the 1980s, U.S., um, officials, Bob Dole, for instance, goes to Baghdad, sits with Saddam Hussein, tells Saddam Hussein on the record, tells Saddam Hussein that we have told the press in the United States, the Washington Post and others, not to write negative stories about Iraq because you Amazing. are fighting for us a great war against Iran. This is Bob Dole, you know, on the record, it's there reported in the Washington Post and in the New York Times. He tells Saddam publicly, we're going to make sure the press in the U.S. gives you a good chit. You know, you're going to come off looking like roses for fighting against the Iranians. And then in a, you know, just like this, they're able to switch the um, way in which Saddam is portrayed and he becomes, guess who? Hitler, um, yeah. you know, Leo Strauss, the uh, philosopher, right-wing philosopher at University of Chicago, wrote a book in 1953 where he coined a phrase called reductio ad Hitlerium, you know, like reductio <laughs> ad absurdum, the mm -hmm. reduction to Hitler. He, he talked about the concept of false equivalences. He says that it's now it's becoming very easy to say you are like Hitler. And the, what the argument Strauss was making 
was because Hitler is a vegetarian, you can say, well, then vegetarianism is bad. Or because Hitler liked dogs, you can say, well, dogs are bad. That was the argument Strauss was trying to make, is this reduction to Hitler. But in recent times, this reduction to Hitler has uh, performed a media role of delegitimizing people completely. And then the neo-Nazis in Ukraine can be actually anti-fascist because Putin is now Hitler. Or the Al-Qaeda groups in, in fighting in, in, not Al-Qaeda as such, but the anti-Saddam groups that were fighting in Iraq uh, can suddenly become freedom fighters against who? Against Hitler. Um, so there is this way, it's not the actor who actually, he is doing something special. But an entire media apparatus now exists to construct people as heroes and delegitimize people. I mean, look at the way they so cleverly delegitimized Julian Assange. You know, mm. just like this, the media went after him. One day, 2009, he's winning awards and so on. When they released the State Department cables and particularly that video called, um, uh, you know, collateral murder, the, the whole image of Assange shifted, you know. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, he became this horrible person. United States government indicted him in 2010. In fact, we have a record in 2010 of U.S. officials essentially calling for his assassination. This is even before the uh, sexual assault case starts in Sweden. You know, this is on the record. How quickly mm -hmm. they are able to use the media, the same PBS type people, you know, who gutlessly don't call out a Nazi for being a Nazi. These same people will lionize and then delegitimize just like this. Got to be really vigilant about what the media, how the media operates. I know this personally. There was an attempt recently to basically portray me as a genocide denier. Goes like this, you know, five or six articles appear. People start to say, oh, he's a genocide denier. And then that's it. You're a genocide denier. You <laughs> cannot no, yeah. actually enough times deny that you are a genocide denier. You get, essentially, it's a hair shirt that you have to wear. Now, that's just the price of trying to speak against power. They will try to do all kinds of things. That's okay. I understand that. In this case, again, it's, it's, not, an, it's not an entirely monumental thing because this is one person and so on. But when you paint an entire country like Russia as murderous, let's sanction all Russians. Let's not allow Russian restaurants to function. Let's not allow a Russian pianist to get a fellowship in Dublin. When you reach this stage, it's so dangerous how this anti-Russian thing has exploded. It's a demonstration of how powerful the media is. Yeah, and it's, it really is. It it's it is frightening. It is frightening how, like you said, it's like they a switch. You just have to flick a switch, and now everybody hates Russians, and they all have to be purged from good society uh, just for the mere fact that they're Russian. Assad's Hitler. Putin's Hitler. Everyone we don't like is Hitler. And speaking of a demonized uh, uh, country, I, I did want to, you know, just to get back to some of the more serious, more global context here. I did want to ask you your thoughts on. The fact that, you know, we saw that Biden just before we started recording announced that the U.S. would be banning imports of Russian oil, which, you know, we already saw that the oil price of, of oil has gone up dramatically and that's actually going to make it go up higher. Of course, the U.S. has to replace that oil. It's only about 10 percent of what the U.S. imports. But we saw a couple of days ago the U.S. actually sent a senior delegation to Venezuela, of all places, which has been under U.S. attack for 
the last 20 years, but especially the last 10, um, to discuss potential, I think, to discuss potential oil purchases to replace the Russian oil. So I'm curious, do you think that the U.S. can tempt Venezuela away from Russia and into its embrace after so many years of literally killing people with sanctions? And those sanctions are, of course, still there. Look, Venezuela is a country, 40 odd million people um, under immense sanctions in very difficult situation and so on. If there's an opportunity for Venezuela to sell oil into the open market, if the United States willing to buy it, I think that's well and good. Venezuela needs the resources right now. I don't think one should take a narrow perspective on this. You know, it's not a betrayal of what the Russians have done for Venezuela or anything like that. We have to understand that they are facing great privations and have very bravely stood up against the sanctions. And I doubt that they will, you know, give in to the United States. But if there's an opportunity to sell oil, I think they personally, I think they should take it because they need the hard currency reserves and so on. And they should also make a deal. They should say, you've got to cut this, that and the other. You've got to, you know, lift the boot off Venezuela. I think that's, I think that's legitimate. And I, I'm sure the Russians would advise them to do the same. Um, the issue isn't actually the U.S. asking in Venezuela for this. The issue is Europe is getting destroyed. Um, it's right. not just, you rightly said in the beginning, it's not just the oil coming into, uh, to, sorry, the natural gas coming for heating. It's also to make fertilizer. Food uh, production is going to collapse in Europe. You know, bread prices have already spiked. Um, this is all very dangerous for Europeans. I mean, the Europeans need to think about their subordination to U.S. foreign policy. You know, when is Europe going to have its independence? It's funny. The United States fought a revolution against Britain. You know, no taxation <laughs> without representation. The Europeans need to stand up and say, no, <laughs> being the frontline state for the United States without our own interests uh, being met, you know, they are getting, they will actually suffer the most in this, is the Europeans. There's talk now of bringing natural gas from UAE, uh, from Qatar and other places. This is liquefied natural gas. Let me tell you, it will be 10 times the price of pipe national gas coming from Nord Stream 2. Plus, you can't do it today. You have to build right. terminals for liquid. I know this because in India... Enron, you remember Enron, you may not remember Enron, Enron Corporation, that fraud from Texas, was building a liquefied natural gas plant and terminal in Dabol, Maharashtra, which totally went, it was totally sunk, ridiculous project. That's what the United States is now promising the Europeans, an Enron type deal to bring liquefied natural gas from you know UAE and Qatar and so it's ridiculous you have the pipes ready to bring russian gas in. and by the way during this whole conflict rania russian gas was continuing to enter europe and russian gas prices went up so the russians actually made money selling natural <laughs> gas to the europeans right. during this whole conflict because europe has no choice but to buy natural 40%. gas some of them get 40% from the Russians. That doesn't even include the oil. There's just the natural gas. And also, it's interesting, too. I mean, the sanctions that they immediately place on the Russian airlines and then also not allowing them to fly into their airspace. Then Russia said, well, you can't fly in ours. So now you actually see European and American airlines canceling flights because they can't fly over Russian airspace. It's There's, there's a blowback from these sanctions. I mean, obviously, the people hurt first and foremost by these sanctions will be 144 million Russians. And I just very quickly want to point out that our leaders are not shying away from saying that this is purely collective punishment. 
Uh, I want to I want to quote Secretary of State Antony Blinken saying recently, this isn't the Russian people's war, but the Russian people will suffer the consequences of their leaders' choices. So that is purely like straight up collective punishment, which is a violation of international law. But we know the U.S. is already doing this to so much of the world. But what you're talking about is the blowback on Europe in particular and the rest of the world. You know, I'm talking to you from from Lebanon right now. The Lebanon, the wheat stores in Lebanon were destroyed in the Beirut port blast back in 2020. Lebanon gets 70% of its wheat from Ukraine. It gets another 15% from Russia. And like most of the developing world, by the way, a lot of the wheat comes from Ukraine and Russia. And so now you're going to have a lot of the developing world dealing with food shortages and the price. More importantly, they're talking about the price of wheat potentially collapsing. You have the price of oil skyrocketing, which is just going to affect everyone around the world. And you have talk now of a potential for a global recession as a result of this. I mean, it's like, are, are the leaders in the West who are trying to punish Russia even considering the consequences of this globally? It doesn't seem like they are because it looks like it's going to be pretty severe. Well, you mentioned wheat coming from Ukraine and Russia. Let's just put it in the big picture. 39% of the world's wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine, 39%. That is not a trivial number. Um, you know, we know, uh, you and I, we know that the so-called Arab Spring started because of rising bread prices in Tunisia and Egypt. It was the spike because there had been a, a, a problem with the Russian wheat harvest the previous year. The entire Arab Spring was premised on rising wheat prices. Just wait and see what's going to happen when energy prices go up again, when wheat prices go up, and we still are dealing with the COVID inflation effect. All these things together, let's see these great masterminds of the world, the so-called international community, deal with all this. They have opened worse than Pandora's, Pandora's box. Can they deal with it? Can they manage it? I don't think so. I don't think so either. And I'm curious, you know, how do you explain the positions of countries like, for example, India, the UAE, Israel, and others who've chosen not to fully condemn the Russians, which I think has actually been quite a shock to the Americans, because I think the Americans always thought that these are these are our friends, these are our allies, they'll do what we say. And in this case, they haven't. I think there are different reasons in each of them. We forget that Israel, for instance, is also a Russian country. Um, you know, after fall of the Soviet Union, there was an enormous of Russian Jews to Israel. And, you know, when you arrive in Tel Aviv airport, there are signs. And because of the apartheid nature of Israel, there are signs in Hebrew and Russian and not mm -hmm. in Arabic. And Hebrew, Russian and English, actually, not in Arabic. Russian is basically a major language in Israel. You can't forget that it's a lot of it is because of that reason, because there's so many Russians um, in Israel and they're actually quite powerful in the far right wing. You know, many of the far right wing Zionist parties are actually Russian parties uh, and they still have fealty to Russia and so on. So there's that. Uh, don't we shouldn't forget that India is complicated. India has a very long relationship with Russia um, when India intervened in the war in Pakistan 1971 toward the creation of, of Bangladesh um, at that time. Um, you know, uh, the um, uh, Soviets struck an Indo-Soviet peace agreement um, in 1993 after the Soviet Union collapsed. India had a 
peace agreement with Russia. They the biggest arms dealers for India is Russia. There, there's a close relationship. Each of these stories, actually, Rania, is a slightly different story. And I think that's because Russia is a major power in the world right. and has different relations with everybody. It's not for one, you know, overarching thing. I think there, if you look down the list, you'll see all kinds of interesting old relationships and old diplomacies at work. And then I also wanted to ask you, Vijay, about China in this uh, in this context, because, you know, we did see that, for example, after MasterCard and Visa uh, said that they would be cutting off uh, their business in Russia, we saw China's union pay come in and kind of like take over. So I'm wondering, do you think China stands to gain from everything that's shifting with this conflict? I mean, this is interesting. Um... I think the Chinese really, in my opinion, just reading between the lines, okay, I don't have a hotline to Xi Jinping, <laughs> uh, just as I don't have a hotline to Putin and so on. Whatever people say on Twitter, it's not true. Uh, I don't take my orders from Beijing and so on, j just to directly put it on the record. Uh, but I, I do feel like reading the, the record from at least the foreign ministry's public statements it seems clear that they were not keen on this particular war, no, uh, right. that this war was not exactly what they wanted. You know, Russia and China have been building up a close relationship. They're building up, um, you know, complementarities in their economy and so on. Uh, this is, they're still 10 years away from what I think they would like as a more direct confrontation with the West. And I know the Chinese have been thinking about this because of Taiwan in China itself, there's a lot of debate about what the implications are for Taiwan in this. Um, you know, China is in that sense quite a risk-averse uh, political structure. They, they don't want to go hard against anybody, you know, despite what you see from the wolf warrior diplomats. It's a very sober-minded uh, political regime when it comes to international relations. And in general, they are not uh, pro-conflict. But I must say, when Russia entered Syria in September 2015, the Chinese entirely supported that intervention and Chinese advisors came in and so on. So they have a very close relationship, an entangled, despite, you know, a very difficult history uh, going back from the 1950s when they had a border conflict, the Sino-Soviet split, then the, the Chinese taking the position of the United States against the Soviet Union from the 70s onward, despite all that, they have a very close equation now, including economically. But I, I just don't think they're going to benefit from this in any way that's obvious. I think the only obvious thing is this shows the fragility of U.S. power. This particular mm -hmm. intervention has shown the fragility of U.S. power. And perhaps there will be greater confidence in countries around the world not to basically fall prey to many of the kind of seductions of the United States, because they will see that the U.S. has largely abandoned Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that, I, that is, I think, the message that many countries are taking from this, that they egged this conflict on in Ukraine. And then when the conflict happened, they said, well, we can't do anything. We can sanction Russia, and, and it's very harsh sanctions against Russia, but they will not get involved to protect any cities or anything. And I think that's the message people are taking, the fragility of U.S. power is I think quite clear. Yeah, I don't think, you know, the sending obviously of like almost a billion dollars in weapons, uh, obviously to the Ukrainians should not be taken as 
something strong. It actually suggests a kind of weakness that abandons Ukraine even further. Not that I want the U.S. to intervene, but you're literally just saying, here's anti-tank missiles. Let's prolong the war. And your country is going to be basically like hollowed out as a result of funding and arming and insurgency. Um so I think that's a really good point. And just as we as we begin to to close here, I, I have just have a couple more questions for you, VJ. You know, I think this has been a lot on the minds of a lot of leftists, um, and I, you know, I've mine and mine included, and I, and I worry that that Russia's invasion will also damage the imperialist left. I think it already has to some degree, not just in terms of its ability to make effective arguments in in an atmosphere of heightened polarization where nuance is now being condemned as, you know, being pro-Putin. Um, but also in that, you know, nationalists and imperialists will be empowered by this. And the voices of of socialists and socialist solidarity will be ignored or actively suppressed. And that's kind of already happening. And just to follow up on that, on that point, you know, perhaps this is, is this a concern of, of maybe white privilege or Western, a Western centric approach because the left and the global South will maybe see things differently. What do you think about what this does to the anti-imperialist left? I mean, I, I, I think I take your point uh, that there are great differences in the left in different parts of the world. But I also want to say that the left in general is weak uh, globally, even though, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm from India. The Communist Party has a million members but that's a million members in a country of 1.4 billion. You know, it's a big scale. Um, the left is weak in terms of our political strength. Trade unions have been really weakened globally as a consequence of globalization. That was the reservoir of, you know, the left strength and so on. So, I mean, we, we need to understand that. And as a consequence of weakness, there's a lot of turning on each other. There's a lot of belief that having the correct, unaccountable idea is 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 best having the perfect position is what you strive for you know i don't strive for the perfect position i try to understand things slightly rationally but also in um, you know in understanding where the movements are at you know where people are moving how they are thinking and so on uh, the point of the left isn't to have the perfect analysis but to build power you know of the left pole and have that power linked to a good analysis of the world so you can build more power and so on. That's what we're think that's what how we need to think, not tear each other's throats on the perfect analysis or or allow this sort of cancel culture attitude to enter the left. You know, oh Rania, you said this yesterday, you're cancelled. I mean, this is a ridiculous <laughs> liberal attitude, you know, that people aren't allowed to make mistakes, they're not allowed to recover from them. You, you you create a situation of risk-averse people. People just don't want to take a risk in their opinions. And then they'll go along with the status quo. You know, this is the problem with can the whole, that kind of cancel culture within the left. Cancel cult culture within the left. I mean, I'm happy with cancel culture. If we're dealing with somebody who's a rapist or a racist right. or whatever it is, deal with them. I don't mean that. I have no problem with that kind of thing. You know, if, if somebody is a rapist, they must be dealt with in the way they are dealt with. I don't have a pro I don't want to make this now a debate about that. <laughs> but in the specific way in which it's entered the left, uh, where you say, oh, I, I believe this about uh, Ukraine. Well, no, you are outside the bounds of thing. We cancel you. Um, I think that's a problem, you know, because that doesn't allow us as, as people within the left to 
uh, to explore ideas in public, to think about things, to learn from things. You know, we all make mistakes. I've made mistakes in political judgment many times. Um, you know, I, I can spend an entire hour with you, you know, talking about the mistakes I've made. Well, if you feel the need to cancel me for that, go ahead and cancel me. I mean, I, it'll, I'll have more time to myself. I'll be able to read the novels I want to read. You know, I, that's okay. But it's a loss for our movement if we keep canceling each other, you know. So in that sense, Rania, I feel that, the, yes, this is a problem for the anti-imperialist movement because a war like this is a problem. I'm an anti-war person in general. I will condemn this war. I don't care if you come back and say, oh, therefore I cancel you because you, you should stand with the Russians. I will never stand with any military force action into another country if all the other means had not previously been exhausted. And as I've already talked about with you, I don't think the government in Russia exhausted all the means. You know, I don't think they built any consent or anything like that. They went in prematurely. That's why the Chinese were upset. That's why Wang Yi said what he said. Uh, I'm quite prepared to go on the record saying I think this was a terrible, terrible idea to enter uh, into this conflict. Well, if you think, no, we got to stand with the Russians, that's up to you. I'm not prepared to stand up with anybody uh, who's behaving in this way. You know, I am, of course, I totally understand 100% um, the atrocities committed against the people in Donbass. I 100% understand the violence of the ultranationalist Nazis operating in the country and so on. I understand all these things, you know, and I understand that there was the Minsk agreement. I understand all that. I'm not you know, illiterate about these things. On the other hand, there were always other options. And I think those could have been played out. Um, and for instance, politicizing this even more, you know, making mm -hmm. the group of friends in defense of the UN Charter hold an international conference on the Donbass could have been interesting. See, now how are the group of friends of which Russia is a member going to say, let's uphold the UN Charter? when by this military action, Russia has actually violated the UN Charter. If it had gone to the UN Security Council, asked for a resolution and didn't get it and then went in like the US went in in Iraq, at least it could say, look, we tried to get a UN Security Council resolution. They didn't even bother to do that, Rania. That must be right. something we should think about. Yeah, I know. I think those are all excellent points. And I mean, I, I think you're right about the canceling. I see, you know, some people in the comments already upset, but you know, it is what it is. I think that we do need to be honest about what could have happened that didn't happen. And so I think those are all important to point out. And you mentioned the weakness of the left all around the world, which is absolutely true, including in the US. But I also found it, find it interesting how much effort has been placed, at least in some corners of the US media, on attacking or antagonizing or trying to bully the left into basically supporting escalation. You've seen a bunch of articles at various outlets, I won't mention them by name, uh, saying, you know, don't be a tanky. <laughs> I'm not really sure like what's meant by that. I guess you have to support NATO or else you're a tanky. Um, you know, we saw the DSA for what I thought was a very fine statement uh, get attacked by a member of the White House rapid response team. We saw the New York Times actually uh, today wrote something about the DSA and how it's caused problems among the progressive Democrats. But what do you think that's about? I mean, the left is weak. So why so much effort on, you know, going after people like us, basically, for being, you know, opposed to the U.S. escalating this war further? 
I think they just will not tolerate any criticism of their positions. I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. part of it. There, there is fear. I mean, I, I'm not uh, sitting right now in the United States, but I do know that in the United States, there is a lot of anxiety in the Democratic Party about the DSA International Committee, the influence it's having on young people and so on. There are so many young Marxist YouTubers in the, in the United States. They are having their own impact. And I think they are afraid of, of that kind of thing. You know, the resurgence of left thinking in the United States. Um, the New York Times article was quite comical, actually. Um, I thought the Intercept article by Rowan Carey was also quite ridiculous. Going after tankies, not naming anybody. And by the way, tankies, you know who the biggest tankies are? The pro-war people who want American Abrams tanks to enter Iraq, who want American point. Abrams tank to enter Libya, who want American Abrams tanks to enter Ukraine and so on. What tanks, you know, I get called a tanky all the time and I'm saying, what tanks am I supporting? Frankly, tell me which tank have I supported? You're the ones who support tanks and you're calling me a tanky? Give me a break, you know. You're the ones who are uh, the ones who are saying, you know, standing there, it's like a bad Monty Python skit. They're standing there with a the green flag telling other people to go and fight the wars that they fantasize about. Right. And then you're turning around and yelling at me and calling me a tanky because I'm trying to stop the tanks from crossing. I mean, that's that's the ridiculousness of it. You see, right now, the left doesn't have the capacity for a frontal contest with a lot of these forces um, because they have media power. They have the power over the cultural institutions. They have power over political and diplomatic institutions and so on. That's the reason why I was saying that the Russians didn't try to build consent. Uh, it, this doesn't mean the UN is a perfect institution. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that you've got to use whatever institutions are available to you to build some consent. You've got to hold international conferences on the Nazi threat. You've got to do all those things. Yeah. Those were not done. I mean, it's key. Venezuela on the 11th of April is holding an anti-fascist conference. That's important to do. You know, there have got to be more of these things. There's got to be more international concern about the rise of fascist groups, not only in Ukraine, but across Europe in general, in the United States. I mean, I saw, you know, I'm part of the team that does the International Red Books Day. We had, you know, half a million people in Kerala read communist books. In Rhode Island, a small left-wing library did a reading of the manifesto and they were attacked by neo-Nazis in Providence, right. Rhode Island. You know, this is all a concern and this should be at the center of things. The Nazis that are rising in Brazil, the Nazis that are rising in India, you know, the, the Hindu right is very much a kind of Nazi-esque ideology. Uh, we need international, build international consent against Nazism. That's, that's a project for us. So I would tell the left, rather than tear each other's heads off, why not combine together? and create a global anti-Nazi project, you know, a united front or a popular front against Nazism. And you include in that whole Nazi camp, you've got to include many of these liberals for whom their liberalism is skin deep. And I'm, I'm using the word skin purposely. It's skin deep. They are worried about what they call blue-eyed, blonde-haired children in Ukraine suffering. They 
think it's perfectly normal for our children in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the Congo, and so on to die. I'm going to ask your listeners, Rania, you know, very quickly, we saw the flag of Ukraine. People may not have known the flag before, but suddenly yellow and gold became common. I want your listeners to admit honestly, how many of them know what the flag of the Democratic Republic of the Congo looks like? Millions of people killed in the Great Lakes War in the Congo. Millions of people. How many of you know what the flag of the Congo looks like? And how many of you have posted it on Facebook? I believe it's zero. Right. And of course, millions of people killed uh, in many cases due to the actions of companies, corporations that are connected to Western countries. Uh, and of course, that's why it doesn't get attention. There's no imperial benefit to publicizing the killings in a place like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think that's such an excellent point that you made. And just, to, you know, one last question to you, Vijay, uh, to bounce off of that is, you know, with our attention so focused on Russia and Ukraine, are there other events around the world we are neglecting and upon which we should focus so as not to be, you know, Eurocentric? And by this, of course, I mean other events that are perhaps happening in the, happening in the so-called uncivilized uh, nations, as our many liberal media personalities have uh, made clear they believe they're uncivilized. I mean, I don't even know where to begin, Rania. Let's be honest. 463 million children have no access to the internet um, because they either don't have electricity, don't have gadgets, don't have wireless or landlines or even cellular and so on. 463 million children. 1.5 billion children were impacted by the pandemic for their education. 2.7 billion people can't eat, don't know when they'll get their next meal, okay? The government of Burundi, a country in Africa, 12 odd million people, the government of Burundi says at the current rate of vaccination, they will reach 70% of the country vaccinated in January 2100. January 2100, okay? Wow. You want problems, there are many in the world, but there's no impact, no focus on them. The focus is on manufactured crises. Now, I'm not saying the crisis in Ukraine is manifest. This is a real problem. It's a real conflict. But don't let it make us forget these other systematic issues. And obviously, how can we forget that there is an ongoing war in Yemen, ongoing war in Congo, ongoing war in Somalia? What is happening to the Palestinians? This, that, and the other. So interesting, Rania, that a, a, a visual goes viral online of a girl confronting a soldier and the headline of the thing is Russia's Ukrainian girl challenges Russian soldier turns out she's not Ukrainian that's Ahed Tamini who's a young at the time 11 year old Palestinian girl challenging an Israeli soldier um, okay Palestinian lives matter not really not at all Indeed. Well, Vijay, also real quick, can you remind everybody where they can follow along with your excellent work? Because it's at so many different places. <laughs> well, in fact, people can go and look at thetricontinental.org. It's a bit of a mouthful, but if you Google Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, you'll get there. And also, of course, I write for Globetrotter, which is a global syndication service. So 
have a look at these places and keep watching breakthrough news it's a lot better than msnbc and certainly better than some of the left liberal outfits shall i name them better leave it out <laughs> Well, we'll be the diplomatic ones here. Also, real quick, I just want to thank all the people who threw out money in the super chat. I'm sorry I didn't get to say your comment on air. I promise with these live streams, I'll, I'll get better about doing that. But thank you, everybody who tuned in and watched. And VJ, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Yeah.